Welcome to Tales of Britain and Ireland. This is a podcast telling the stories, legends and folk tales of Britain and Ireland in no particular order. Presented by Graham and coming direct from South Yorkshire, each episode tells a story or selection of stories from all across these islands and throughout their history, followed by a short and decidedly inexpert discussion of the origin and themes of each tale. Hello everybody, I'm Graham, and finally I have another episode of Tales of Britain and Ireland for you. It's been a pretty big gap between this episode and the last, but I can finally categorically assure you that, for a while at least, there are episodes coming out a lot more regularly. There's a bit more detail at the end of the episode, but many thanks for your patience, and thanks especially to my patrons. I can also announce that the podcast now has a website. It's very straightforwardly at www.talesofbritainandisland.com. Really, it's mostly just adding a bit extra to each tale. There's a short version of the story on there for most episodes, in case you want to recap. There's illustrations and pictures from the episode, and there's links to episode sources. And then there's just stuff that's tangentially connected. Views of the local area, brief discussions of similar legends, etc. For example, I embedded a video of a pug dressed in a Halloween costume to one episode, which seemed super relevant at the time. There's also a few in-depth biographies of those reoccurring folklorist characters I keep mentioning, which go into a bit more detail about them and about their key works, if you're interested in that. Anyway, go check it out if any of that sounds interesting. But without any further ado, let's launch into today's story. Kate Crackernuts. It's a cold, dark night in the forest. The flickering illumination from a fiery pitch torch falls on thin, tightly packed trees stretching off in all directions. The torch moves swiftly through the woods, held firmly in the hand of a desperate young man who is running as fast as he can across the root-strewn ground. His ragged, torn breaths appear in the icy air before him, slowly dissipating behind him as he rushes blindly onwards. He knows that something is wrong, terribly wrong, but he doesn't know what. He's just got to find his horse and his hound and get out of here and far, far away and never come back. He stops for a moment, panting hard. He straightens, waves his torch around desperately with a whoosh of flame, back and forth, a few times as though trying to scare something off. The light illuminates mighty tree trunks and huge entwined branches. He knows that he's lost now, really truly lost. But what else can he do but go on? He sets off again, but his legs are tired and he half runs, half stumbles. A great, slow, rumbling noise comes from somewhere just in front of him. It fills the air. It sounds kind of like some impossibly large door being gradually pulled open. The tired, desperate man draws to a halt. He brings the torch up to try and see what it is, but as he does so, a dazzlingly bright light bursts forth from in front of him, blinding him. He drops his torch in shock, backs off, trips on some roots and falls over backwards. Now he's winded, splayed out on the floor, squinting upwards into the painfully bright light, light from which, to his horror, 
silhouetted figures emerge. Humanoid, misproportioned, all long limbs and thin bodies. Backlit by the dazzling light, the shadowy black figures reach down to the lost young man. We start the story proper in A Kingdom. This is not a story that's tied to any particular location. It could almost be anywhere, and by anywhere I mean Northern or Eastern Europe, given its motifs and general feel. As it's set in a non-specific location, because of the kind of characters it has and its themes, this story fits into the category of fairy tale, far more than most of the stories I've told on the podcast. Like many fairy tales, it involves some aspects that don't seem to entirely make nice, neat sense. A lot of tropes and loose ends, but we can roll with those, even though I'll complain bitterly to you every time we do. I like to think of this story as a bit of a love story, but, and with apologies to Dick Gochen, a different kind of love story. Now, the story comes from Scotland, so feel free to imagine it there. That certainly works well enough. But what you really need to know now is that we're in a kingdom, and we are concerned with the royal family. There's a king and a queen, as all too often there are. The king had inherited the kingdom from his father, but the queen had not been born to be queen. She'd achieved that honour by marriage to the king. She was the second queen, the king's earlier wife already being dead and buried, because being queen was a dangerous job. Well, being a mother was quite dangerous, really, what with the whole childbirth thing, and queens were very much required to be mothers. The king had a daughter from his first marriage. Kate was her name, and she was almost an adult now, say, 17 or 18 in our society. You'll note that the queen was Kate's stepmother. There's a bit to get a hold of here so we'll do it slowly and the king's new queen the stepmother of kate also had a daughter from a previous relationship who was about the same age there are less details about this backstory than i'd like how long had stepqueen been kate's stepqueen had her mother recently died and this was a new thing or was it years ago and they'd lived as a family pretty much all their lives but you're going to have to join me in just filing such details as unknown and probably irrelevant for this story. The important takeaway is that the royal family was four people, a king, a queen, and the daughters of each of them. Oh, and I also need to tell you the name of the queen's daughter. That was also Kate. A king, a queen, and their two daughters, Kate and Kate. Look, I can hear the sighs of exasperation. How to tackle this has been going round my head for ages. And you may think that that sounds like a slight issue, but let me tell you, one of the most famous tellers of this story, a towering figure in the world of fairy tales, was so enraged with the situation of having, gasp, two people with the same name, that he calls the tales corrupt on that very basis, and then just flat out changes one of the women's names to Anne, which, honestly, that is the coward's way out. I know it's rare to encounter characters with the same name in fiction, well, generally, but especially when you've only got a couple of characters. But, you know, it's damn common in real life. I've been in a social group where there was Dave, Evil Dave, Quiet Dave, 
who might have been the same as Evil Dave, now I think about it, at a different time. Um, but anyway, New Dave, New New Dave, and absolutely no Davids for some reason, because people just hate multisyllabic names, or Davids for some reason. And that's before we even talk about the infinite Chris's. The point is, this happens all the time, and people deal with it. So, we could deal with it. But how? Now, I could take the Katie route. That's there. That's obvious. Catherine Briggs, doyen of folklore research, she did that. But it just feels wrong. They are both called Kate. Perhaps we could use the approach of posh British people who simply must name their children after themselves and go with Kate the Younger and Kate the Elder. But the characters aren't really distinguished by age. I hope you're enjoying this real-time insight into my thought process, by the way. Very, very exciting. Okay, okay, King's Kate and Queen's Kate it is, for now. Other names may suggest themselves later as the story develops. Watch this space. Suppose I should get on with it, really. So, all was not happy in this family. I know, a dysfunctional royal relationship seems inconceivable. But sadly, it was the case. For the Queen hated her stepdaughter bitterly. For the King's Kate was truly a great beauty to behold and she was kind and gentle and other positive adjectives applied almost exclusively to women. Worse still, the Queen thought, in a very cold, cruel and unloving way, was that the King's Kate was far more bonny than her own daughter. Yes, she thought of her only daughter as the ugly stepsister. What can I say but yikes? The Queen obsessed over this. And one day she took her concerns to a small, well-kept cottage just outside a village close to the castle. As she walked the narrow path to the dwelling, there soon came the gentle clucking of chickens from the house, the garden, and even the forest beyond. The birds walked freely around the property, a huge number in a dazzling variation of shapes, sizes and colours, light golden brown, speckled greys and whites, Large black chickens, their feathers flecked with iridescent greens and blues that shimmered in the gentle spring sunlight. It felt like a calm, peaceful place. The chickens were well fed, content, happy. This was a good place for them. They weren't in a coop because no foxes would ever threaten them here. The Queen had taken many of her problems in the past to this idyllic cottage core hideaway. Quite a few people in the kingdom did. For this was the home of the henwife. A henwife is a woman who looks after hens, and other poultry too, of course. It's a fairly self explanatory title. It's a good place to get eggs and occasionally meat. The henwife did provide all that. She truly did. But it was well understood that she performed other tasks as well. Listen to people's problems. Provided them with solutions. Such people have existed throughout human history, stretching all the way up to the modern day, going by many different names. General problem solvers who you turn to at a time when there seems no other solution. We've met quite a few of them on this podcast already. 
Their interventions change the course of lives, and in so doing, they grease the wheels of story. The Queen discussed the issue of the King's pretty Kate. The henwife listened, patiently, understandingly. She didn't judge people on their pettiness, suggest they perhaps look inwards to address their rather significant issues. She wasn't a therapist. Who was she to decide on right and wrong? She simply helped people achieve what they wanted. If the payment was right, of course. And the Queen could afford to pay most handsomely indeed. Tell you what, dearie, why don't you send this beautiful girl to me tomorrow morning? Make sure she's fasted first, though, won't you? Not to eat a thing. And then, well, we'll see, won't we? And the old henwife gave a broad, beaming smile, the very picture of jovial friendliness. Breakfast didn't come for the king's cake the next morning. The servants who usually gave it to her must have forgotten. She was making her way through the palace to sort it out herself when her stepmom ambushed her. Oh, Kate, my darling, could you do something for me? Always helpful, Kate replied. Yes, of course, um, what is it? You see, I just need something from the henwife, you know. The queen lied easily and gave Kate a knowing look. It's just, well, you know, I've got... She stumbled over her words performatively, and in this cunning exchange she was managing to suggest to the girl, the girl who was well aware of the henwife and what she offered, that whatever the Queen wanted from her was an intensely private matter, concerned with some of the more delicate issues the henwife dealt with from time to time. Something that the Queen might not want the servants or the King or even her own daughter to know about that she'd come to Kate because she could be trusted to help. It was a particularly underhand and very effective technique. Oh, yes, said Kate. Of course, anything I should tell her. No, no, my dear. Could you just get some eggs, though, for appearance, you know? She'll know what to do, I'm sure. Just, it really could do with being right now. Oh, no problem at all. And King's Kate, kind and beautiful, set off at once, her thoughts of making her own breakfast gone from her mind. But as she passed through the palace, she noticed a slice of bread left on the side. Anyone eating this? When the answer from the servants came in the negative, she took it for herself, and she cheerily set off on her errand, munching the bread on the way. When she arrived at the henwife's cottage, she was greeted warmly. Ah, dearie, from the queen, yes, yes, of course, said the henwife. And you want eggs? I'll go fetch them for you. And she potted around, asking Kate questions about herself and generally showing her warmth. Into the cottage they went as the henwife looked for something to put the eggs in. Oh, oh, dearie, she said, as though absent-mindedly. Could you just see how that pot is getting on? indicating a pot cooking over the stove. Just lift off the lid and tell me how it's doing, would you? She called out, while rummaging around. Kate did exactly as she was asked. Took the lid off the pot. 
took a look inside. There was water, with something in it bubbling away. The henwife looked up at the woman watching the pan. If Kate had been able to see her, she would have seen a very brief flash of anger cross the woman's genial expression. But it was gone in an instant, and smiles and friendliness returned. Water's not quite boiled yet, called out Kate, setting back the lid. Oh, that's that's great. Thank you for that. Here's those eggs. Oh, and on the other matter, do tell the Queen that she must take care to keep her larder door firmer closed next time. Kate interpreted this as a more cryptic message than it was, and off she went back to the palace, happy to have talked to the henwife and to have helped out her stepmom. I'm going to interject at this point to give a very lukewarm defence of evil stepmothers here, or more precisely, royal evil stepmothers. I say this isn't a popular approach, but given the number of live-action remakes partially re-examining female villains that have come out over the past decade and a half, it's actually a very popular, well-worn take these days. But here we go. You see, the Queen, just by dint of being where she is, is in a potentially very precarious situation here, as is her daughter. She is only where she is because she's married to the King. Her daughter, Kate, is only where she is, living in a palace, because her mother's married to the king. Now, if we were to assume that in this kingdom women could inherit the crown, well, when the king dies, Kate, his daughter, would get that crown. And where exactly would that leave the position of the queen and her daughter then? They haven't got a place in particular anymore. If Kate just wanted to get rid of them if they offended her, well, they weren't really anybody. And even if she didn't, well, keeping people in palaces was expensive. Her advisors might start to ask questions. Who were these women living in the palace? Why were they still there? Should we really be paying for them? And she, the new queen, might feel compelled to agree. The logic was sound. The point is it wasn't a very secure position for either her or her daughter, who she loved greatly. And they say the best kind of defence is offence. Now, getting rid of the king's own daughter, or, you know, hideously maiming her so she might not be accepted to rule effectively, well, that might open up options for you. At least people might start to consider your daughter as a potential successor, maybe. And if you don't do that, well... Would you be willing to take the risk of what would happen when the king dies? The thing is that being a queen, where your main job was to produce children to inherit the throne, was very stressful when there were other children who weren't yours already there. And it's only natural that you might feel some antagonism towards those other children. A lukewarm defence, as I said. But this isn't just wild speculation. These are genuinely the kind of concerns that motivated royal women throughout European history, when their power in reality came only through their male children. They were in very elite, very precarious positions that tended to provoke disunity and distrust of all the king's other children, and in turn led to all kinds of wars. Anyway, just putting the other side there briefly, because soon... Ain't no one going to be sympathising with this stepmother. The King's Kate returns home to her stepmother after her visit to the henwife. 
the stepmother who quickly hides her disappointment at seeing the girl as Instagram flawless as ever. Kate gives her the eggs and passes on the message. She says to you that you must take care to keep your larder door more firmly closed next time. Perhaps winking and tapping her nose conspiratorially as she says it. Happy to help, by the way, she adds, and means it. When she's gone, the Queen scowls. She understands the henwife's message. And so, to the next day. Well, that's a wash, rinse and repeat. But this time the Queen made sure there was no food lying around anywhere. Kate's breakfast once again didn't arrive, and once again she was ambushed by the Queen. With total trust, she accepted that there was a need to go back to the henwife, and back she went. It was another beautiful day and as Kate wandered down a country lane, she passed some people picking peas. She stopped to chat, for she was a kind, amiable sort, and well-liked by folks of all classes. When it came up in conversation that she hadn't breakfasted that morning, she was handed a handful of freshly picked peas. Ah, the perversity of the wealthiest being given things for free, when they are the ones who need them the very least. Maybe the pea-picker thought the princess could be a brand ambassador. But of course, no such reciprocation would ever follow. Sorry, don't know where I went there. I mean, Kate thanked the generous pea-picker, even perhaps helped pick a few, but then made her apologies and continued on her way to the henwife's cottage, which still appeared the very model of picturesque rural domesticity. Things proceeded much the same as the previous day. Nothing happened when Kate checked the pot. Kate left with some eggs and a message for the Queen. You really must keep your larder door firmly closed next time. Though the henwife conveyed it in a manner that managed not to let any hint of irritation into her tone. The Queen received the message with a forced smile and her stepdaughter responded with a genuine one. Happy again to assist. The Queen didn't know what had happened this time. She hadn't wanted to do this, but she was going to have to step things up, as keeping Kate fasting each morning was harder than expected. There was only one way to do this, to go with Kate. It was risky. She could be associated with whatever was going to happen. But this couldn't go on. Even Kate would grow suspicious soon. And so, to the third day. Fairy tales generally love the number three. In particular, there's a common motif of repeating an action three times, the first two resulting in failure, the last in success. Freeze the charm, as the saying goes, and there's a reason for that. It's about as common a narrative trope in fairy tales as heading to the club with all my friends, getting drunk on whiskey and coke, getting down on the dance floor, not needing a man to marry but wanting to have some fun with you tonight is in modern pop music. It crops up all the time. This time the Queen comes with Kate, and I don't know what kind of subterfuge she uses now to explain why she couldn't possibly come the other times, and why she now still needs Kate to come with her. As they walked together, the Queen constantly made sure that the King's Kate wasn't eating. Her irritation was beginning to show. Slight worries, half-formed, ungenerous suspicions began to intrude into the peripheries of Kate's mind. But she battered such thoughts away, and believed badly of herself for thinking them for just a moment. 
They were in the cottage. The queen and the henwife were talking about nothing in particular. When the henwife asked Kate once again to look in the pot. The innocuous pot that seemed always to be on the boil. As Kate took a step closer, the two older women turned to look at her. She must have known something was wrong now. Some part of her primal brain must have been aware of the danger, screaming at her desperately. But if it was, she overcame it, ignored what was surely irrational paranoia. She lifted the lid off the pot. Now, unless you know this story, then you're unlikely to guess what happens next, and I reckon the Queen herself was equally surprised by it. There's a sharp, sickening crack as Kate's head wrenches itself from her neck. The Queen recoiled back. Then, by its own power, the detached head threw itself down onto the floor. There the head turned, the long blonde hair sweeping across the floorboards with an audible sound. Eyes open, it looked back at its own headless body, still standing there, the head's mouth agape and aghast. This was some really intense body horror stuff here, and it was only getting worse. In a dusty corner of the room, unnoticed to all but the henwife, lay the decapitated head of a sheep and propelled by forces unseen, it leapt onto the stump of Kate's neck. There were gruesome sights and sounds as the sheep's head and Kate's neck adhered, melded together, bones fused, veins, capillaries and nerves twisted wildly and connected up, dead sheep flesh interweaved with Kate still living. In a few instants it was all over, Blood flowed from Kate's heart into the sheep's head. She opened her new eyes. She tried to scream and gave out a terrified bleat. The Queen watched this first with terror and revulsion, but this quickly gave way to a horrified, sadistic delight. She'd started this whole process rolling, and while she didn't expect this, she embraced it, found herself laughing in the ways of villains throughout time and genre. This was insane. This was brilliant. She's not so bonny now, is she? (laughs) She turned to the henwife with staring mad eyes. Yes, yes. We're done. Get out and take her with you said the henwife, her cheerful demeanour completely gone, her voice full of menace. On the floor, the eyes of Kate's head closed for the very last time. Okay, so this opens up lots of questions about the Queen and the henwife's plan here, right? I'm going to throw some of them out there so you know I've thought about them, and so I can get them off my chest but I'm not going to give any answers to them. First, what is the possible advantage of this plan over just killing her? It doesn't sound like squeamishness was in evil woman's nature. Maybe I'm just brutal, but how in the bejesus does she think she's getting away with this? 
the King's Kate is still alive. How difficult will it be for the Queen to stop Kate finding a way to communicate this, even if she can't speak, even if she can't write? I mean, she's got the clothes, she can use some kind of sign language, body language. It's going to be reasonably easy to work this out somehow. Is this just a bizarre attempt at an ironic punishment? Oh, you were pretty and now you're not. Though, honestly, woman with a sheep's head, I know without looking that there's an internet community specifically dedicated to that exactly. She doesn't likely to be quite as unattractive as the Queen assumes, but that aside, maybe she wanted her to be executed by her own father as a monster? Particularly sadistic? That kind of works. But once again, how does she stop people finding out it was her? What with Kate there being able to communicate? What if she's even seen taking her back to the palace? By pea pickers, for instance. So we might be able to come up with explanations here if we were to engage in some dubious leaps of logic. But in the end, this is a fairy tale. That's how it's going down. I actually want to understand a bit more about the spell. Why the fasting before it worked? Why the pot? But let's wave all that away as the general oddness and ridiculous specificity of magic spells across basically all media they appear in. I actually find myself fixating more on the question of, where is Kate now exactly? By which I mean, where is her personhood, her essence? The story is explicit that, and totally comfortable with the idea that, Kate's sheep-headed body is her. But this sits surprisingly oddly with me. Typically, I suppose, I imagine the essence of one's being as residing in the head. The brain and the sense organs and the mouth, it seems intuitively logical that that's where the personhood is. And it's a curiosity of your narrator's mind that while I'm quite happy to accept magic and someone surviving decapitation even, my imagination somehow really kicks back quite a lot at the scenario where, when decapitated, a person's essence remains with their body and doesn't go into their head. The thing is, I've seen Futurama and I I know how it's meant to work. But actually, my belief in that is much more rooted in my own culture than perhaps I realised. And to others, it's not quite so evident at all. Clearly, in this world, the soul or whatever it is that makes you, that remains in the torso. And that's where Kate's personhood is following this dire event. Well, that was a couple of lengthy and not particularly rewarding tangents. Back to the story. The Queen, still grinning far too much, brought the terrified, sheep-headed Kate back to the palace, bleating in terror. And she brought her to the chambers of her own daughter, the Queen's Kate. I've done it! Look at this! and she presented the ghoulish Barnum-esque walking freak show to her own Kate. And what is an evil stepmother without an evil stepsister? You and I know how this goes. The two go hand in hand. She was ugly as well, wasn't she? The Queen said so herself. That's why we're here. The ugly stepsister, always desperate to take away that which rightfully belonged to her beautiful sister because of her being so... Gosh darn beautiful. That's how it goes. The Queen's Kate turned at her mum's words, gazed in shock at the monstrous sheep-headed creature she led behind her. 
the creature who was cowering in terror and making awful distressed sheep noises. And the Queen's Kate started, gave a little involuntary cry. Her brain worked fast, though. She saw the clothes. That's Kate. Yes, that's right. She's not so pretty now, is she? We've done it. You'll be the most eligible princess all around now. No one's going to want her like this, are they? She tugged on sheep-headed Kate's arm to emphasise the point. Inside Queen's Kate, all sorts of thoughts and instincts and emotions were sounding alarm bells and fighting for control. A large part of her was saying, Run, run, run. She'd been wary of her mother for a while now. She'd grown up with her, been raised by her. She knew what kind of mother she was. Not a great one. But this was something new. This was a whole magnitude beyond anything she believed her capable of. For, in clear defiance of the ugly stepsister trope, Kate was nothing at all like her mother. And she was horrified. Some part of her mind focused on survival, was desperately trying to overcome the bits that wanted to flee, and the bits that wanted to fly into a rage, and the bits that wanted to break down and scream and cry. And those strong, level-headed, survival-focused aspects of the princess's personality won out. Just. Ah, that's good. And it hurt her to say so, because she saw sheep-headed Kate sag at the word she could clearly understand. They were friends, they were best friends. For as long as they'd known each other, the two princesses had been inseparable. And now, Kate thought she'd been betrayed. Oh no, mother, I suppose I'll be the one marrying the princes now. To see her friends suffer at her words cut her deep inside. Yes, yes. Oh, when the king finds out how ugly his daughter has become thanks to the henwife and me. The queen laughed. The queen's cake caught a ferocious scream at the very last moment and gave a choked... What was that, dear? Nothing, mum, nothing. I I was just thinking, you must be exhausted after all the effort that went into... This... She indicated sheep-headed Kate uneasily. Why don't you leave me with her for a bit? I'll make sure she knows her new place. The Queen suddenly did feel tired, realised the adrenaline that had coursed through her ever since witnessing the transformation was beginning to run down. She sagged a bit. You know what, I I think you're right, dear. I'll just go to my chambers for a bit. Yeah, you do that. At the door, the Queen turned, looked at her daughter. Madness shone in her eye, and she smiled. We're going to be so happy, you know. You and I, I love you. I know, said Kate, sweetly. Bye, Mum. Say it. Love you too, Mum. The door closed. Kate crept to it, listened intently as her mother's footsteps disappeared down the corridor and as her mother's chamber door closed. She opened her own door gingerly, terrified of a trick. But no, it seemed her mother had really gone to bed. She turned back to Kate. 
I'm so sorry. Oh my, oh my, this is... I'm so sorry about what she's done, what she's done to you, my own mother. She's she's evil, she's evil. Sheep-headed Kate perked up. Really? Was this true? Her friend hadn't abandoned her? I'm so sorry about what I said. I didn't mean any of it. I just had to get her out of here. And now, now we'll, now we'll... The Queen's Kate's thoughts were whirring. She was trying not to panic. Should she go to the King? What if the Queen denied it, though? What if the King thought that his daughter was a monster? What would the charming, dearly beloved henwife do if her dark magics were exposed? It was too much to think about. Too much risk. Unlike her mother, Kate wasn't an experienced plotter able to map through such scenarios. But she was a determined woman of action. She was going to protect her friend and herself. Come on, we're leaving. We've got to get out of here. Sheep-headed Kate pointed upwards, and the Queen's Kate understood what she was saying, how conspicuous they'd be. And as she considered, just for a moment, Queen's Kate felt the visceral horror, the deep wrongness of that head on her friend's human body. It was an abomination. She hadn't had time to really process it yet, but now she shuddered and almost recoiled, but caught herself. No, this was still her friend. Clearly it was, the very way she just indicated her own head. This was no monster. The monster? The monster? Well, she was sleeping it off in a room down the hall, and they had to escape from her as fast as possible. They packed as quickly as they could, took money, grabbed bags to the best of their abilities, but princesses weren't really prepared to go on cross-country hiking trips at a moment's notice. Kate found a piece of fine linen and wrapped it into a makeshift shawl around her sister's head to try and disguise it. She took her sister's hand, looked her in the face as best as she was able, and said, We are going to fix this. I'm with you. And out into the afternoon they fled. quick aside on the term sisters here. The original version of this story, short as it is, uses the term sister, not stepsister. Their exact relationship is, like much of that tale, unclear. The most reasonable interpretation I can come up with is the one that I've used here, that the two are biologically unrelated, stepsisters, but the term itself is clunky and actually fairly unnecessary. The relationship between them is a very close, loving, familial one, They've been raised together, and it's only the Queen who's concerned about their exact biological relationship. Therefore, the word sister seems right, and I'm going to go on using it in that way. And also, yes, for anyone who hasn't picked up on it yet, this is a tale where the protagonist is the ugly stepsister. Finally, this is a story of two quite different halves. I know this is a long episode, so if you wanted to split it up, We're moving into the second half now, so taking a break here would be a sensible place if you need it. Whether or not you took a break there, let's have a quick recap. The Queen, the evil Queen, the evil stepmother, let's really call her what she is, has, in a dastardly plot cooked up with the henwife, or the witch, let's call her what she really is, replaced the head of the King's bonny daughter, Kate, with that of a sheep. 
Queen believed that her own daughter, the ugly stepsister Kate, would be delighted with this, and in that she could not be more wrong. Kate is horrified, and at the first opportunity, she's fled the palace with her friend and sister, and now the two of them are on the run, refugees and fugitives, desperate to get far, far away from the evil queen. They kept going, keeping well away from travelled roads wherever they could, in a direction that led to lands far away from their own. Days passed. Kingdoms then and there were much smaller than the vast countries of today, but still not easy to cross if you were an inexperienced traveller and trying to avoid detection. It wasn't good going, not at all, sleeping under the stars in rain and shine for many days, with no real plan apart from to get as far away as they possibly could. They'd buy things wherever possible, try not to appear too rich to generate suspicion, and of course they had to keep the sheep's head covered as best they could, and let the Queen's Kate do all the talking. A life more different from that in the palace could scarce be imagined. But together, the young women coped. They had each other, and they were far safer than with the penwife and the mad queen. I can't really figure out how the king features into all of this, but my guess is that he really wasn't a very hands-on type of parent. Cold, distant, aloof, married a woman who was willing to magically disfigure his own daughter, which was not really his fault, necessarily, but it adds to a general picture of a man somewhat disconnected. This fleeing was an awful decision, but unfortunately, it was the best one. After many days travelling, the pair came to somewhere far enough away that they did not know it at all, where the coins and accents were different. This was a kingdom of mountains and extensive green forests. A large hilltop castle dominated the landscape and could be seen from all around, and the Cates were princesses. Castles were what they knew. They decided they'd come far enough now. They couldn't live on the road forever. Already their clothes were getting tattered. The money they'd taken was considerably less than they had to begin with. They weren't managing to take their multivitamins and the wool on Kate's head was matting and growing over her eyes. There was the whole matter of the sheep's head to contend with. But, you know, these were royalty. Centuries of inbreeding at least meant that they were used to people who looked a little different. Poor people? Hell no. But a sheep's head? Probably a family trait. No need to bring it up. So up they climbed to the castle, found a guard, made conversation, and soon enough they had an audience with the king of the country. Now they weren't to know it, but they'd arrived at a time of great tumult within the royal household. The crown prince, the much-beloved heir to the throne, was very ill indeed. He would sleep in his chambers all night, but when the day came he'd be immensely tired and weak, unable to rise from bed, finding it difficult to hold conversations, falling asleep at the first opportunity. And every day he seemed to wane a little more, get thinner, his eyes sink back into his head. Over the course of a few months, his family, courtiers and servants had watched in despair as he turned from the very picture of ruddy health and youthful exuberance to a sad and emaciated man, for whom it seemed increasingly like every day could be his last. But that, that wasn't all. As I've emphasised much on this podcast, people got ill a lot in the past, and died of it a lot, you know, without all the modern medical science, antibiotics and sterilisation, and yes, even vaccines, sorry, anti-vax listeners, you probably didn't have any anyway, but I don't now. 
This was a fact of life then, and even happened to the richest, because all the riches in the world can't buy you centuries of medical advancement. So people were used to illnesses, and while it didn't decrease the pain, it was something expected. But there was something else about this. You see, early on a servant had stayed with the prince all night long. I don't know why, precisely. To roll him over if he's breathing funny, put flannels on his head, pick off full leeches and put on empty ones. No idea. But this servant, who is too lower class to get a name, she hadn't been seen since. She just disappeared. When questioned, the prince didn't know anything about it. He had slept through. There were no signs of a struggle or anything like that. No suggestion of foul play, exactly. But a woman, last seen going into the prince's room, was gone. A family were bereaved and had no answers as to what had happened to their loved one. I wonder if the next servant assigned to stay with him was told what had happened. But regardless if they went in completely unawares, boldly or reluctantly, they too disappeared. One was forgivable, but twice was a habit. The whole castle was unnerved, and nothing could be done to stop the disquiet spreading throughout the court, the servants, and soon pretty much the whole kingdom. Whatever the prince was suffering from was no ordinary disease. It was somehow supernatural, and it was surely connected to something that happened at night. So if they wanted to cure him, they'd have to find out what. The ageing king offered a peck of silver to anyone who'd stay with the prince for a night, not willing to do so himself, apparently. A peck, by the way, is an old Scottish measurement of volume. My googling tells me it was about the same size as nine litres of water, uh, and I've ended up picturing five of those big bottles of Coke stuffed with silver. Somehow, the, the diet ones, I think they've got silver on them. That's about the right size. Anyway... Americans listening still use a peck, though it's a slightly different sized peck, of course. I mean, none of this helps if you don't know the value of silver, I suppose. Look, guys, look, it doesn't matter really. Just stop asking me how valuable a peck is. I'm, I'm talking to my own brain here, really. Not, not, not you, understanding listener. It's valuable, that's all you really need to know. It's a lot of money. Oh yes, and this absolutely is the same peck as the peck of pickled peppers that Peter Piper picked. This was a good amount of money that the king had not yet had to pay out. I see two scenarios as to why. Either there were no takers, or because there were lots of takers, and none of them were ever seen again, and therefore no payment had to be made. The end result was the same from the king's point of view. The two Kates were given a brief overview of that situation as they waited to meet with the king, a warning about what was likely to be on his mind. In their audience with him, Kate without the sheep's head explained some of her situation, skipping over quite a few of the details. My sister is sick, as you can see. And indeed the courtiers could see, and there was a lot of concerned muttering. But the king barely seemed to register it as odd, just giving a nod in sheephead Kate's direction. We've had to leave our home because of it, and now we need lodgings, if only for a night. Kate indicated her tattered clothing and general unkempt appearance. We can pay. The king waved that last away. I understand sickness, girl. I know you need a bed for the night. There's no need to pay. Well, not in coin, at least. 
you can stay here for a few days, and I will pay you a whole peck of silver, all on one condition. You sit up and watch my sick son tonight. Human-headed Kate took a deep breath. Truth be told, she'd been expecting this, and already considered it. They really did need somewhere to stay, and longer term as well. Sheep-headed Kate really needed to have some rest to adapt to her new body, and maybe even to get some help. Days would be perfect. And quite aside that, she had confidence in herself, did Kate. As ugly and presumably as unmarriageable as her own mother apparently fought her, she was never in any doubt about her own abilities, and was up for the challenge. Okay. I'll do it. The king tried to hide his surprise and his doubt that he'd ever see her again. The two Kates had a relaxing day in the castle, experienced that intense relief and almost sinful pleasure of washing for the first time in a few days. Probably in one of those big wooden bathtubs we're all familiar with. Warm water, layers of dirt being scrubbed away to reveal soft skin beneath. Ah, true bliss that. Human-headed Kate got herself a bit of kip in preparation for the long night ahead. They ate a good meal. And on that note, one of my asides here, I know you love them really, I just kept thinking about how sheep-headed Kate is eating precisely. I was worried. The issue for me was mostly with the teeth. They tend to eat grass They can't get enough nutrients from grass on the first go, but they have to regurgitate it into their mouths, making what is known as cud, and then chew it again. We've established Kate's mind is still in her body, but did any sheepy instincts carry over? Did she want to eat grass? If so, her stomach wouldn't have been able to do the whole cud thing. Couldn't digest it at all, really. That sounds very bad. But luckily, I found out that sheep can eat oats and beans and presumably other veg and grain as well. And if their food is cooked, a lot of these issues would go away anyway. Much easier to get nice moist cooked food past sheep teeth. Maybe the other Kate or a servant could cook bits of meat even up for her. So I've decided that after all this, she was probably okay and to just stop worrying. Which is good because this train of thought reminded me a little of a creature from medieval beastries called a Myrmecolion or antlion. There are real insects that are called antlions, but them this ain't. No, this is a lion's head on the body of an ant, the product of a um, union between an ant and a lion. And really don't think about that last part too much at all. Antlions would die very young because while the head could only eat meat, the body needed grain, and so they'd starve to death. Luckily, it turns out it wasn't actually so for Kate. And I know you were worrying. Anyway, back to the story. Kate had a brief chance to talk to the ill prince before he drifted off to sleep. He seemed like a nice man, but one who was very tired, kind of scared of what was happening to him, and just as confused by it as everyone else. A man in grief for what seemed like his inevitable demise. He drifted off into sleep easily. Kate sat in a chair and watched. And nothing happened. The prince was under deep. Time passed slowly and uneventfully, right up until the clock struck midnight. 
at the clock strike, the prince jumped up out of bed, which wasn't meant to be possible. Kate had not been paying much attention and was shocked by the movement, and jumped up herself. Uh, What's happening? Are you okay? But he ignored her, went to get his clothes, started to dress himself. Uh, Excuse me? said Kate, and tapped him on the back. The prince didn't turn to her, continued to dress. Hello? Kate went round the front as he was pulling on his trousers. She looked him dead in the eyes as he straightened up to tighten his belt. He did not look back at her. His eyes were open, but they weren't seeming to register anything except what he was doing. Okay. This was the supernatural bit, wasn't it? The prince was out of his room in moments, moving fast. Kate followed behind. Should she wake people up? No. She made the same decision as those who'd watched over him before, that there simply wasn't time if she was to keep up. She ran on after the prince, who was taking the stairs at speed. He was soon in the stable, saddling his horse in hardly any time at all. For the first time since he'd woken into his entrancement, he called out for his dog, which came bounding to him. He's going somewhere, realised Kate, as the prince opened the stable doors. If he went now, he might never come back, and she wouldn't know what had happened to him. So as he got on his horse, she leapt on behind him, grabbed him around the waist which registered with him as much as anything else she did, which is to say, not at all. The prince gave a giddy-up boy, or whatever the more correct term that real equestrians use, but I only know horse riding from films. And the prince, his horse, and his hound headed out into the dark night, with Kate clutching on tightly behind him. They weren't on the road from the castle long before the entranced prince turned his horse into the greenwood. There was but a small amount of moonlight, the forest dark around them. But this didn't seem to bother Mount nor Ryder much, though they rode carefully, the dog at their side. As her eyes adjusted to the darkness, Kate couldn't help but notice that all around them hazelnuts hung from the trees. Huge numbers of them. The forest seemed to contain more than she'd ever seen in her life. She reached up and grabbed some as she passed. Why exactly she did this is one of the mysteries of this story, but hazelnuts were well known to have magical properties, and perhaps Kate thought she needed all the help she could get, wherever it was they were headed. She took a few handfuls of the hazelnuts, stuffed them in her apron as they rode, because back then women's clothes had pockets, and then they stopped abruptly. They had arrived at a large hill that rose up from the woods. Moss, grass and trees covered it. The occasional craggy outcrop could be discerned by the sliver of silver light from the moon and stars. The entranced prince spoke up. Open, Green Hill, and let the prince in with his horse and hound. Now, listeners, we never actually find out what happened to the missing watchers, those servants we can definitely assume nothing good. But I suspect it was at this crucial point that they went wrong. For they did not do what the quick-thinking Kate did. For she noticed the specificity of the prince's words, how they didn't apply to herself. And so she called out, And his lady behind him! There came again that sound which we heard at the start of the episode, a great rumbling, 
which Kate could see was stone and earth moving. Impossibly so, as the whole side of the hill opened up. Bright light burst out of the gap, and Kate looked away to stop it blinding her. There were sounds coming too, of music and laughter and movement. It sounded for all the world like a tremendous party. And into the hill they rode. Kate, hearing that others were nearby, slipped off the horse's back at the last possible moment. The hill closed up behind her. They were in a cavernous hall, well lit by fires and torches, as finely decorated as any palace ballroom Kate had ever seen. There were banqueting tables piled high and a great many people in attendance. Kate very quickly found herself a small hiding place, between the grand golden doors to the large hall and the doors on the hillside. A niche, or niche, if you're traditional, or Nietzsche if you're German. In any case, a place that Kate could squeeze into, where she couldn't be seen, but she could peek out. Peek out at the people, no. No, that was wrong. On a second look, these weren't quite people. They were like people. They were humanoid. They were talking, they were laughing in delight. But more sweetly, so sweetly, audio saccharinity, voices unnaturally dripping with sugar as they helped the prince dismount as a group of beautiful woman-ish figures led him to a dance. But the proportions were all wrong, limbs too long, waists too thin, and they were all so beautiful. Her mother would have had a fit at how much more marriageable they were than her own daughter. But they were beautiful in a strange kind of way. They seemed to glow with it, not as some kind of metaphor. The beauty seemed to radiate from within them like light did from a lantern. A lantern that would attract moths. Moths who spin madly and wildly, tiring themselves out in the light's splendour. Easy prey. Kate watched grimly as the prince danced, as the fairy women around him clapped and cheered and danced along. And when that dance finished, the musicians started another. There were elegant, brightly coloured couches around the hall. And at the end of several of the dances, the exhausted prince threw himself upon one. Fairies gathered around him with fans and the odd grape to try and revive him. And when that wasn't working quickly enough, they oh so gently laid their hands upon him, and with inhuman strength they softly pulled him up and began another dance. This explained things somewhat. Kate waited, not daring to make a sound. From the corner where she was hidden, Kate could see that there was a fairy child close by to her. Almost a baby. It was strangely proportioned too, but, well, that's just babies for you, isn't it? Big heads and all. But though just a child, in its hands it clutched a wand made from the wood of the hazel trees that were oh so common in the forest. She tucked herself into her place, tried not to get seen. And now one of those events occurs that, as I mentioned, is very fairy tale, and we just have to roll with it. 
Kate could hear two of the fairy women standing close by, watching the child. They were talking of various things she didn't understand, and some she did, and didn't want to think about too much at all, and instead concentrate on really, really staying hidden. Please don't come round this corner, don't look in here. However, at some point, Kate's ears pricked up. You know that girl with a sheep's head has come to the castle, said one fairy to the other. Wouldn't she like to know that just three strikes from that wand would return her to normal? <laughs> I'm sure she would. But that's not going to happen, is it? Kate almost stopped breathing. The conversation moved on. So yeah, what's the chances of that? Now it could have happened just like that, but I think there's surely a reading of this story where the fairies knew she was there and for some reason, given they're clearly the antagonists here, but for some reason they wanted to help her but not wound her pride by revealing that they knew she was hidden there all along. The fairies who'd been conversing returned to the dance. The baby was left there all alone, close to Kate. The wand in its hands, just there. If she took it, would they notice? There were a lot of wands clutched into the hands of various fairies. Maybe they wouldn't. How could she take it anyway? That baby had it. Now, the cocky amongst you may be thinking, this is exactly like that popular phrase, candy from a baby. A thing that is, by reputation, very easy to take. Hazel wand, much the same. And yes, that is the case, but also, typically, that scenario is assuming that it's the taking that's the important bit, and not, say, the crying uncontrollably and attracting attention afterwards. It also presumes that the baby is a human, and not a supernatural being with potentially unknown strengths and powers. For Kate, though, these things were critical. Her mind went to the hazelnuts in her pocket. She nervously peeked around the corner. Baby still there. All the fairies all still well away in the hall. Okay. She rolled a hazelnut towards the baby. It looked down at the nut quizzically. Kate rolled another and another. The baby watched them carefully too. It was curious, not upset, not starting to cry. A fourth nut rolled past the child and now it was really interested. It dropped the wand and went after the nut. Quick as a flash, Kate darted out, scooped up the wand, put it in her apron and hid herself back round the corner again. And then she tensed herself, ready for the crying of the child. Which never came. It was busy rolling nuts around. She had the wand. Now, just to get out of here. Time passed agonisingly slowly for Kate, and for the prince painfully exhaustingly, just as every night for months. The sounds of the laughter and the music and the shoes hitting the floor were laced with unmistakable menace now. Mercifully, Kate remained undiscovered. Just before the break of dawn, the music stopped. The fairies retreated somewhere deeper into the mound, taking their baby with them, and thankfully not noticing the absence of the wand. And the prince saddled up the horse. The magical earthen door was opened, and at the last moment, Kate slung herself up behind the prince, and off they rode, back to the castle.
Later that morning, servants came into the prince's room, their hearts heavy, for they knew the young woman would be gone, and they'd have to break the news to her sister, but also to the king. So imagine their tremendous surprise when they heard the sound of the fire blazing in the room beyond. They pushed open the door. The prince was in bed, sleeping, as he always was, and, sitting on the floor, cracking nuts and then roasting them on the fire, was Kate. She turned to them, gave them a cheery good morning, and asked if they wanted some nuts. The king had questions, lots of questions. Kate thought it over. Should she tell him? Would he believe her? Would he be able to do anything if he knew? And more than that, a little bit of her mother's plotting might just have rubbed off on her. Oh, he had a good night's sleep, she lied. And I tell you what, if you give me a peck of gold, I'll stay up with him all tonight too. Oh, and I'll have that peck of silver you owe me. The king agreed without hesitation. She was the only one who'd survived. If she wanted to do it again, then yes. Surely this had to be the road to his son's recovery. A small sliver of hope entered his heart. And if there had been any doubt at all, they would have been swiftly allayed not an hour later, when the previously sheep-headed sister emerged from her chambers with her beautiful human head fully restored. The Queen's Kate, that is the Kate who'd gone to the hill, Kate Crackernuts, that's the name of her story, and that's what she's going to be known as from now on, apparently, just because she cracked some nuts. Fair enough, I doubt she'd want her mother's surname after everything that's happened. Even if Kate Crackernuts does unfortunately sound like the name on a business card left in an old-fashioned telephone booth, which we'll just gloss over, I suppose, Kate Crackernuts had done what the fairies had said. She'd struck sheep-headed Kate three times with the wand not telling her sister what she intended in case there had been a mistake. At this stage, a health warning is needed. Fairies are not to be trusted. I believe that Kate was incredibly lucky that she wasn't the victim of a trick, that the free strikes actually cured her sister, and didn't say, gave her the same curse as the prince, or turned her into a crocodile, or caused her to drop stone dead. Very lucky. Bear that in mind if you're ever in a similar situation and thinking you've heard some secret knowledge from the Fae. The Fae are tricksy things, and often, but not always, but very often, they mean you harm. Anyway, back to Kate. There was none of the violence of that initial transformation. The sheep-like bits of the head, the wall and the extended jaw and the teeth, seemed simply to gently evaporate off, revealing Kate's human head underneath as if it had always been there and the sheep's head had been just a mask. Previously sheep-headed Kate reached up to her face, felt it, ran to find a mirror, said words. How did you? This is... She broke down with the enormity of it all, sobbing, and then they were both crying and hugging in delight. Kate asked her sister again, but but really, how, how did you do it? But Kate Crackernuts knew the character of her good-hearted, trusting sister. The sister who had gone to the Henwife three days in a row, who had grown up the heir to the throne and the prettiest girl in the kingdom, and yet could talk to pea-pickers like equals and be accepted by them as such. 
She hadn't a cunning bone in her body, and even after her awful experience, she couldn't imagine people putting themselves at risk or danger. But Kate Cracknuts had a plan developing. A dangerous plan, a slightly underhand plan. She hadn't pieced it all together yet, hadn't worked out how she was going to free the prince. But she knew already that this was something she was going to do. Or at least die trying. And she was going to get something from it. Independence for her and for her sister. So she didn't tell her sister how it was done. They just hugged and cried and laughed. When the two Kates entered the court again and the cure was announced, they caused a huge stir. In the first case, as Kate Crackernut's healing skills now seemed very impressive, with very good tidings there for the prince, Secondly, and swiftly overwhelming the first reason, was the great beauty of this unmarried, of-age, former sheep-headed Kate. Because, as we've already established, she was a stunner. And the kingdom was just full of rich, eligible men of her age, who were now suddenly very keen to be the one to show her around and tell her about their feats on the tournament field, while others retreated to their rooms and started composing their songs of love. She was causing quite a stir. And you know what? She didn't seem to hate it. That night, presumably after somehow fitting sleep into her day, Kate Crackernuts waited up again with the prince. This time she was prepared. But the night went much like the previous one, excluding the wand. She tried more actively to wake him this time against the standard advice for sleepwalkers, but it really didn't have any effect. He was under that magic deep. Open, open, green hill, and let the prince in with his horse and his hound, and his lady behind him. She went unobserved again, because apparently she'd chanced first time on a perfect hiding place. But she returned back to the palace a little frustrated, cracked nuts in front of the fire angrily, her mind racing. Could she outwit these elves, somehow? But she didn't show a bit of that to the king. With breezy confidence, she declared. Yes, he had a good night again. That gold? The gold was forthcoming. Tell you what. And she ups the price again. I'll stay with him one more night, but only if I can marry him. Now that, that was a gambit and a half. First of all, I'm going to ask that you put aside any notions of marriage as you might have it being about love. This was not about love. Kate was going to have to get married sometime to someone, and soon. And if she wanted to have a good quality of life over many years, she would have to get married to somebody wealthy. That was, unfortunately, the reality of the time. All the other bits we might associate with marriage don't really come into it. It's more like a job that you have for life, and the best thing you can do at the start is to get given the job with the highest salary. Whatever he was like as a person, she'd deal with that. What she wanted was the hand of the heir to the kingdom. In time, she would very likely be queen herself. This was unquestionably the best job that Kate could get. For the king, well, his son's hand was worth a lot. Married to the right woman, it could seal an alliance that might save the kingdom from war. Or, of course, allow the kingdom to get an ally for a war against another. It might secure the loyalty of a troublesome noble or get him in the church's good books. 
All that would become unavailable if he agreed to wed the boy to an unknown like Kate. It would of course also become unavailable if the boy died, which seemed pretty certain. But you know, actually such considerations were really far from the king's mind now. He needed to save his son, and Kate, Kate seemed like the best way to do it. So with all his court as witnesses, he agreed. And as a father, rather than as a king, he looked at Kate imploringly. Please, he asked, if you can, help him. I'll see what I can do, sire. And she meant it. The one downside to this deal was that if she didn't help him, she'd committed herself to marrying a very ill man who had supernatural enemies and who was probably going to die very soon. Having been up all night, Kate slept most of the day, so she failed to notice the assorted single men of the castle falling over themselves to impress her sister like they were the NPCs in a medieval-themed dating simulator. That evening started much the same. Over and over it went in her mind as she waited for midnight, as she followed the prince to the stables, jumped on the horse, grabbed nuts in the greenwood, and even as she said the words. But as she got into her hiding place, she had nada, nothing, zilch. She watched as best she could as the prince, her fiancé, danced against his will. Saw how truly awful this was for him. Damn it, this was hard to watch. For all that part of her wanted to do this just for the silver and the gold and the security of the marriage, she was also a highly principled and fundamentally good person. She wanted to save him, just as she had saved her sister, even though that meant she had to give up everything to do so. It hurt to see him like this. The unthinking cruelty these creatures were inflicting on him. Think, think, how could she defeat these incredibly powerful fairies who lived inside an enchanted hill and had spirited people away without any consequences for them? Those were, those were good questions. This had to be building to a dramatic showdown with them, but how? The baby was there again. She idly watched it as she fought. Played with a small bird of a type she didn't recognise. Some elven bird, maybe, jumping up and down and around the child. Then she froze. Fairy voices, close. Were those the same that she'd heard the other day? Voices so sickly sweet that they make you vomit before their owners came to tear out your eyes. That bird's here, said one. Don't worry, he's not going to see it. He's too busy dancing, isn't he? Even if he does, so what? He's not going to cook it and eat it, is he? Get his free bites in and cure himself? I suppose not. It's actually kind of funny, isn't it? Ironic. Yes. (laughs) Kate really couldn't believe her luck. Maybe no showdown would be needed. She just had to get the bird from the child. Luckily, she had some nuts and experience in this. It didn't even take much encouragement this time. The baby had clearly enjoyed the nuts last time, and a bird was a lot more difficult to keep hold of than a wand in the first place. A few hazels were rolled. The babe was distracted. Kate made a lunge for the bird, grabbed it, broke its neck without the slightest compunction, and retreated back into her hiding place. She was shaking despite herself, waiting again for that cry of the child. The cry that never came. 
for the babe was quite content with its nuts. It was an agonising wait till the morning. Though she'd done it twice before, this time seemed even worse. Dead bird in her apron, desperately hoping not to be discovered, for the absence of the bird to be discovered. As for the prince, he had no idea what was at stake. So against his will, he danced, and he danced, and he danced. Eventually, after many long hours, the time came when the fairies retreated. The hill opened. The prince, who looked fit to collapse, dragged himself onto his horse and back to the castle they rode. Later that morning, instead of nutcracking, Kate plucked the feathers from the strange elven bird and cooked it on the fire. The prince, who'd hardly had the strength to say a word during their time together, awoke at the smell of the cooking. Wow, that that smells amazing, he managed weakly. What I wouldn't give for a bite of that. So, when it was cooked, Kate gave him a bite. He was prone in the bed, so Kate had to gently feed it to him. There may have been nothing quite so obviously magical here as strikes of a wand, but the warmth that returned to the young man's cheeks, the way his body even seemed to be filling out. He lifted himself up onto his elbows, the most movement he'd done for days awake, there was certainly magic here. Is, is there any more? I need another bite. There is, said Kate, passing up some more. While he chewed slowly before in his weakness, he wolfed the second piece down greedily. There was a distinct shimmer as he changed, his face shifting, losing more of that sunken pallor. He swung his legs off the side of the bed, sat himself up entirely, ready for the third bite. And as that went down, he was returned to full health. Hale and hearty, the prince arose from his bed and dressed himself, a beaming smile on his lips. When the servants came to check on him that morning, they found him and Kate cracking nuts by the fire. Kate, presumably, having broken the news to him of their engagement. And there isn't much more to tell, really. Kate married the crown prince, Her sister Kate had had her pick of men in the palace and opted to marry the prince's younger brother. Also a prince, of course. Smart choice there. So, as the original tale puts it, the well sister had married the unwell brother and the unwell sister, because having a sheep's head is an illness, had married the well brother. And as many Scottish fairy tales end, They all lived happy and they died happy, and they never drank out of a dry cappy. Which basically means they always prospered. The end. Hang on, you might be saying, if you aren't just sick of this after more than an hour and just wanted to end. Hang on, just one gosh darn moment, sir. What about the evil queen? What happened to her? Where's her comeuppance? She was due comeuppance. That's how this story works. I know that. And the henwife, same deal, what's happened to her? Now, I know that's how it's meant to work. I know that it's narratively unsatisfying to some. But remember, at its core, this is a story where the protagonist who wins the prince is the ugly stepsister. 
I think we can forgive it for not feeling it needs to hold to other fairy tale tropes. So we must be happy with not knowing what happened to the king and the queen. But as for the two Kates and their princes, they all lived happy and they died happy, as happy as you can be about death, I suppose, and they never drank out of a dry cappy. The end. Okay, there we are then. That was a good lengthy one. I promise the next one will be shorter. Thank you if you're still here. If you're not, I totally understand, but you can't hear what I'm saying. Okay, so discussion section. This is one of these tales that has a very singular identifiable origin point. It was first published as a very short tale, like five minutes to read, in Longman's magazine in 1889. Magazine has misleading connotations here, because it's now synonymous with glossy magazines, but put those out of your mind. Longman's magazine was essentially a book that came out regularly. Contents-wise, it was very literary, lots of short stories, but some articles as well. It was decidedly more highbrow than most glossy magazines today. One of the editors of the magazine was Andrew Lang. Lang was, well, not so much a folklore collector, but definitely a folklorist and a writer on many associated topics, mythology, religion and fairy tales. In the next week or so, I'll put an article on the website about Andrew Lang's work, so if you're listening to this not immediately after it was released, chances are it's there already. And I'll also bring in his wife, Leonora Lang, who, apart from sounding like Clark Kent's ex, was an important figure in the field of fairy tale translation herself. Lang published the story of Kate Cracknuts in his column in the Longman magazine, and that is the first time it ever appears in print. In addition, it's the first time that the tale title, Kate Cracknuts, is ever recorded. Now, it might sound obvious that those two goes together, but often during this period, and especially in Scotland, the names of ballads and folk stories had often been written down, mentioned in other works in passing, but the stories to which those names referred weren't generally known. And by weren't generally known, I mean weren't known by the wealthy upper classes and weren't written down. This led to a situation of hunting down stories by their titles. But Kate Crackernuts appears totally new and unheard of in 1889. So where did it come from before then? Well, this gets a little murkier and slightly unclear even. Lang definitely didn't collect it himself, strike one Wikipedia. But in his original column he says, quote, a lady has sent two Scottish nursery tales, end quote, of which Kate Crackernuts was one. This lady's location isn't given, but apparently the stories reached her in a roundabout way from an ancient family, whatever that means, from Angus, which is the county on the east of the Scottish mainland. Which sounds straightforward enough. This lady sent in the tales to Lang, who published them. However, Andrew Lang then later publishes Kate Crackernuts again in the Folklore Journal a year later. There he doesn't mention a lady, but says that it was collected by Mr DJ Robertson of Orkney. Now, Duncan Robertson was an Orkney poet, folklore collector and naturalist who also wrote in Longman's magazine. Unlike Lang, Robertson did actively collect folklore. 
So it's possible he interviewed the woman mentioned as previously submitting to the magazine. It seems slightly odd that he wasn't mentioned before, and the original wording does strongly suggest that the lady sent them in without his intervention, so there's some confusion here. If you've not been paying attention to all the ins and outs there, the most likely scenario is that the folktale comes from Angus on the Scottish mainland, and it was told by a woman in Orkney, either off her own back or through folklorist Duncan Robertson. If anyone knows how to edit Wikipedia, it needs an update saying this, by the way. So that's the original story, but it was then republished and substantially rewritten by Joseph Jacobs, who included it in his clearly awfully named English Fairy Stories, which was a pretty big hit, and its inclusion in that collection is probably the reason that this tale has some level of popularity today. And I do mean at the D&E level of popularity of fairy stories, but it does crop up fairly often in lesser-known fairy tales, whereas many other really lesser-known fairy tales don't even make that list. Joseph Jacobs completely acknowledges that he's totally rewritten it, saying, quote, It is very corrupt, both girls being called Kate, and I've had to largely rewrite. End quote. Anyway, obviously, in my telling of the story, like Jacobs, I have made changes, but mostly to expand it by fleshing out characters, their backgrounds, and explaining their motivations a bit more, while the basic events of the story remain the same. Okay, so what do I think of the story? Well, I love it. And it probably is a corrupt story, by the way. I I do agree with Jacobs there. There are pieces that seem to be missing, It might be two stories mashed together with bits taken out. No one knows, but the fact is it doesn't really follow a typical story structure. But this is the story we have, and I love it kind of because of this. I really enjoy how it subverts tropes. First of all, it's very female-focused. I think it's the first episode that properly passes the Bechdel test. That, if you don't know, is a measure of does a story feature two women talking to each other about something that isn't a man? It should be a very low bar to hit. In this case, the henwife and the queen talking about Bonnie Kate, which, yes, is not the most feminist thing, given that they want to replace her head with a sheep's head, but it does pass that very basic test. It also features four women who are all recognisably different characters, which is unfortunately rare in folktales. The subversion of the evil stepsister trope is another welcome twist. I don't really have time to go into it here, but often in original fairy tales, so-called evil stepmums were just mothers. They became stepmums later in an effort to sanitise the tales. This story has its cake and eating it by having a mother who is both an evil stepmom and an evil mother. Because ugly and therefore evil stepsister tropes are so recognisable in fairy tales to us today, I've lent further into Kate Krakenut's being an ugly stepsister, while the original story more plays up how beautiful sheep-headed Kate is. But regardless, I called this a different kind of love story at the start because it's not about someone falling in romantic love. It's the love of two sisters and the lengths that Kate Krakenut's will go to to save her sister. What else? The fact that we don't find out about the mother and the father. I love that. It's so rare that stories don't tie things up neatly. It feels a bit more, not exactly like real life, but it does feel like sometimes you don't know. It does centre the story on the experiences of Kate, who might never know. 
that is how things go sometimes, especially in a world before mass communication. It makes sense that they don't know, and that it all doesn't tie back. As I said, that might well just be an artefact of how two or more stories have been combined, but I love it. And let's talk about fairies for a bit. This tale features proper fairies, which are sometimes called elves. The elves slash fairies we see here never have their motives defined, but their actions are very close to the ones we find in folkloric tales more generally, where they will often kidnap people away. We've seen that in the podcast before in the tales of Thomas the Rhymer and Tam Lim, but that is pretty unusual for a fairy tale. I know it sounds odd given the term fairy tale, but while fairies sometimes feature the malicious, wild, nature spirit-esque fairies that live in the Greenwood, those don't often appear in the same world as evil stepmothers and winning the hand of the prince and killing the giant type stories. Where fairies do appear in those, they're usually more benevolent, being much closer to the kind of winged Tinkerbell-esque fairy. Think the fairy godmother from Cinderella, versus the very elven, malevolent fairies of this tale. And I really like their inclusion here. It makes the tale more regionally specific. Elves are a big thing in Scottish folklore. And it also blurs the line between outright fairy tale and folk tale. To me, it's quite strange that many of the illustrations that do exist of this story show the fairies as being, well, those winged diminutive flower inhabiting type, when they very, very clearly aren't that. Wasting illnesses being caused by nighttime activity is something that crops up in both fairy tales and folklore, but it's in the latter where elves and fairies are cited as the cause. There is a little bit of me that wonders if dancing here is a euphemised version. It's certainly possible. Often these folkloric stories feature some kind of sexual element that's the reason for the life force being drained. Think the succubus here. It is just a different kind of supernatural explanation for illness, but to me, dancing with pretty women does definitely seem to carry a potential connotation. I could be really wide of the mark on that one, but thought it worth mentioning. I do think that Kate Krakenut wants a mainstream filming. There is a 1990s full-length Czech film version of it, with some differences, but fairly close. There are dragons at the end, but it's It actually looks not too bad. I've linked that on the website because it is on YouTube, but it is unsubtitled, um, and my check is non-existent. You can go and have a look. Now, there are other fairy tales a bit like Kate Krakenut's. It's sometimes described as a gender-swapped version of the Twelve Dancing Princesses, which is a German tale collected by the Brothers Grimm, and of which there exist Russian and French versions as well but to me it seems more complicated than that. It's more that the Dancing Princesses story contains set pieces that also crop up in Kate Krakenut's, rather than being a different version of it. Fairy tales often seem to work in that manner. There's lots of different pieces that can be combined together that end up being radically different stories, and to call them all versions of each other doesn't seem to quite hit the mark for me. This is not just something in fairy tales, of course, and if you want to understand what I'm driving at here, consider how film uses staple ideas and even plots. The car chase, the love triangle, the femme fatale, the showdown at high noon, the wise cracking animal companion, etc, etc. 
but the films that these ideas can be incorporated into might be very different. In the story of the Twelve Dancing Princesses, well, it's the princesses that obviously go and do the nighttime dances, but their dances are with twelve princes, so there's no elves involved, there's no magic involved, it's all consensual, and there's nothing about a wand or cures. So, while there's similarities, it's clearly not the same. To take another element of this story which feels very specific but crops up in a completely different location. There is an earlier story from the Isle of Isla off the west coast of Scotland called The Girl and the Dead Man. This features a sister who gets paid a peck of gold, a peck of silver and a potion that restores her sister to life for watching over a corpse at night. In this case, you can see the similarities but the story is otherwise very different indeed. And to take another, there's a Norwegian and Icelandic tale called Tatterhood, which features an ugly sister whose prettier sister's head is removed, by trolls in this case, and replaced with a calf's head. The ugly sister has to get back her sister's original head from the trolls, which also seems very close and specific, but only in that little detail. The point is that Kate Cracknuts does not either spring new fully formed with no influence, nor is it some relic of a legend passed down over millennia unchanged, nor is it simply a gender-swapped version of another tale. It's its own story, which is part of a fairy tale and folklore tradition that's far greater in scope than Scotland or the British Isles, and part of that tradition was reworking ideas into new forms, combining them and creating new stories. When exactly this happened is difficult to pin down. It's entirely possible that the versions of the Twelve Dancing Princesses and of Tatterhood that were published earlier in the 19th century may have actually directly influenced Kate Krakenuts. Or all these stories could have picked up common bits from elsewhere, or they could have existed at a much earlier time. We can't really tell. But what I'm certain is the case is that Kate Krakenuts now stands on its own as a unique story, one that I've enjoyed telling and I hope you've enjoyed listening to. Okay, I could talk for a while on this, but let's leave it now. A couple of things before we wrap up. Firstly, a massive thank you to the people who have signed up as Patreons since the last episode. That is Lenica, Libby Saurus, love a dinosaur name, M, Victor and Ruth. Thank you so much for doing so. You can sign up on Patreon now to get extra episodes and you'll only ever donate when there is one, though that will hopefully become a fairly regular occurrence soon enough. Secondly, please do check out the website if you're at all inclined. There are pictures, there are retellings of the stories, there are just other bits and pieces. There is a lot I'd love to add on there, a map certainly, but those things are much harder to get looking good than I'd like. There are a few past episodes which are still a little bit light on content, but I'll be filling those out over time. For all the people who've asked for recommendations for other podcasts, I've got a big long list of those on there as well, and it's only ones I've actually listened to more than a couple of episodes, and I've enjoyed. The podcast is, at the moment, pretty much fully relaunching. I've promised this before, but it's now a very different situation for me personally. There will be many more episodes over the next six months or so at least, and hopefully longer. From February 2022, I'm going to work to a schedule of two a month, plus a Patreon episode. I'll also be getting more active on Twitter and Facebook, and you can expect an Instagram account any day now, which will probably have images I found in old books as I'm doing my research, 
but might also feature photos of my general wanderings and who knows what else. I've got some longer term ambitions to make YouTube content, but not really a Scooby where to begin. So maybe, but don't hold your breath. Thank you so much to everyone who has supported me, Patreons, comments, reviews, and just people who've listened and stuck with it. That's why there's going to be a lot more of this, and I'm so delighted to be doing this. And please do keep giving feedback. It's probably more important now than ever, both on what you do enjoy, but if I start to do things that you don't like, please let me know. Okay, next episode, I promise we have a genuinely shorter story. We're going back to the weird marshlands of the Lincolnshire Fens and the horrible creatures that can be found there. You can follow Tales of Britain and Ireland podcast on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. There's also a website, talesofbritainandireland.com, where there's a page for each episode which contains more information including illustrations, asides and recaps, along with other additional bits and pieces to explore. The intro music was written and performed by Alice Nichols, and the outro music by Mitch Keeley and Josh Newman. And you can find all the other musical credits on the episode page on the website. If you enjoyed this podcast, then please do share it with others or give it a review, as those really are the best ways to help us out. You can also join Tales of Britain and Ireland on Patreon to get extra members' episodes. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join me again soon. Oh yes, and this absolutely is the same peck as the peck of pickled peppers that Peeper Piper picked, by the way. Oh, f- ugh.